And good morning, church. Now we're talking. All right. Now we're cooking with oil. Okay, here we go. Well, my name is Matt Wilson. I serve as the, middle, as the uh, student ministry pastor, uh, and that means I work with middle school students and I work with the high school students, and which means I run, 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 and run. And we've been doing that all summer. We've had some major events this summer. Uh, one of them we just got back from. I think the last time I preached, I was leaving for middle school camp the very next day, and uh, we got back from that about a week ago. And I want you to know that it was an amazing time uh, that just, just I, I mean, I think of the, the worship today and how it reminded me of the middle school worship of 350 middle school students just singing just almost ruckusly, just so loud, praising God is amazing. But we started to work with our students each night, kind of uh, breaking down the gospel message for them. And we started to really notice that after day two that uh, really God was starting to work on their hearts. And uh, by day three, we actually invited them to, uh, whoever would like to give their life to Christ or rededicate their life to the Lord um, to just let us know. And that we had eight of our 20 students uh, let me know that they wanted to give their life to Christ or rededicate it to the Lord. So it was an amazing time. It really was. But I, I want to thank you both for uh, the middle school trip. I'd ask you to pray for us, uh, but also for our Puerto Rico trip that we went on with the high school in June. Um, and we asked for prayer for that as well as your support. So I just want to thank you really for all your prayers and support for that and for your support and really your role in helping to disciple the students of our church and of this community in leading them to become more like Christ. So I just want to thank you uh, and just uh, let you know just a heartfelt appreciation I have for you all in the participation of that. So, well, as we... Uh, uh, move forward into our sermon today. We are continuing our series on finding rest in the Psalms, and it is our, our uh, end of the summer series, just kind of prepare ourselves as we uh, move into fall and in school starting and all of that. And so as we go to begin, why don't we start with a, uh, a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful to be able to come before you, to be able to gather uh, as your church, as your people, as the body of Christ, to lift our voices up together in unison in praise and worship to you. Uh, we just thank you for this time now that we're able to come to you and hear from you from your words. So I pray that your spirit works within us to open our ears to hear these truths, to be able to work within our minds to understand these things and work deeply within our hearts to see our desperate need for the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work, and that we may begin to experience the transformation of the gospel. And so be with us now, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, kids are ridiculous, right? Are we have any kids here today? If you're a kid, raise your hand. Are you here today? So, all right, are you ridiculous? <laughs> Parents, are your kids ridiculous? Okay, all right, we could have stories from parents and it would take the rest of our time probably halfway into tomorrow too, right? Especially these two. And, uh, but uh, uh, I, that would actually make Lara, I think, the director of ridiculousness. Is that be correct? And so, but kids, kids are like that. Um, we, when I was a kid, um, I lived in Nebraska. I lived in the last row of houses in Lincoln, Nebraska. And after that was what I'd call the great nothing. And uh, Nebraska's filled with a whole lot of nothing. And uh, so the great nothing was there, just all woods. But right off the back of my backyard was this enormous oak tree. And I mean, this thing, it was, it was, it was amazing and it was huge. It, was, it stood out from all of the other trees and it really was a gathering spot for a lot of the neighborhood kids that we would just hang out at this oak tree because it's like having a jungle gym right in your backyard. And that's what we did. We would climb this all the time and we would play this game called the ground is lava. 
okay? So we'd get in the tree and we'd be in the tree and all of its branches and we would jump from branch to branch and be hanging precariously off of these branches and, and just all the things that kids do, right? And, uh, and, and the whole rule was, well, if you touch the ground, you die because it's lava, okay? Now, what's ridiculous is that, well, yeah, the ground doesn't need to be lava because when you fall out of the tree from 20 feet, the ground is hard and you'll die. And so I don't know why we had to inject the lava factor to it. But I don't recall anyone falling out of the tree. Jumping, yes, but not falling directly. So, uh, but I, I was impressed to find out that one of the networks actually created a game show after this game we played in our tree. Uh, it's called The Floor is Lava. Anybody hear The Floor is Lava? The game show, uh, that? You can see by the popularity here how it only had two seasons. And, um, but <laughs> uh, the, floor the Floor is Lava is a game show where you have a team of people who have to go through essentially like a house of rooms. And each of the rooms, the floor was filled with lava. Now, it wasn't real lava, of course, but it was like this slimy goo and, and it was bubbling and you know, burping and belching, you know, how like lava and all of that does. And they have to jump from chair to chair to furniture to hang off of the, the curtain rod and then swing from a chandelier and all of these kind of you know, things to get across the room, all right, and the team that could do that wins, and if you touch the lava, you, you die, right, because it's supposed to be lava, right? And so uh, I think that is a really good picture of life for us uh, in a lot of ways, that the floor is lava. Life is very much filled with dangers and troubles and anxieties and things, correct? And really, it feels like as we go through life, we're just jumping from one precarious scenario and getting that figured out. And you actually don't get to figure that one out before usually the next one comes along and then you're jumping to the next one and then you're kind of like precariously hanging on this and then waiting for the next thing and then you gotta get to the next. And it's just, that's life, right? And it's, it's, it's hard, it's, it's challenging, it's difficult. And that's just, that's just kind of the normal things that we experience and that doesn't include all of the, the really bad things that, that enter into our life. Um, but in all the while of trying to navigate through the, this, this floor is lava life that we have, we also are trying to find what we would call like this path of life. And by that, we mean what is really the best life possible or what we would coin, what is the good life, that they had a good life. And, and we wanna try to seek to have this best life experience or this ultimate life experience. And it's interesting because we're doing that all the while we're trying to transgress across this room and the floor is lava. And so it's kind of, you know, it, it just, it almost doesn't make sense, but we don't have a lot of other choices. But this is the pursuit that we are in. Well, today we're gonna look at a psalm that I think speaks into this very, very well of this path of life uh, in the reality that we are in. And so uh, we're gonna uh, turn to Psalm 16. So turn that in your Bibles if you could and, uh, or your electronic devices and we're gonna read that together. And from this, I hope we're able to learn some from very important truths. This is a very powerful passage. And um, uh, so let's go, let's, uh, if we could, if I have everyone to stand please for the reading of God's word. We're gonna read verse one all the way through verse 11. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply 
Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make, my, you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, this very powerful psalm is a psalm from David, and it, it literally is a series of declarations, very confident declarations that he is making about his relationship that he has with God. And it's interesting because he's making these declarations to God almost as a confession of, of his devotion and his, it just his, his heart for God. But he also then claims too and making confession of who God is for him as well. And so it's like a union between the two just, uh, and he's making these declarations and they're just one after the next after the next. Uh, out of these 11 verses, there's only one verse that begins to kind of is a negative statement, but even in that he's showing his devotion to God. And so I'd like to start, if we could, by actually looking at the end first, with the, begin with the end in mind is always a, a, a great thing, uh, to find the conclusion here, because I think it sets the course that is before us. And he says, he says, make, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, when you think about it and you study these things, you have to think, really, are not these things the things that we are pursuing in life, that we're trying to take hold of and grasp, that we want to have this path of life where we have the fullness of joy in all of the areas of our life, all the things that we're doing. That, and think about this, think of this last statement, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In other words, pleasures that never end. They do not stop. Now, we run hard after these things. These things mark us and we chase these things and we chase them over and over and over because typically the things we're grasping onto, once it's over, the joy, what? It, it's over, right? It ends. The pleasure's over and then we have to pursue the next one. And so we keep, keep running and we keep pursuing and we run faster and we grasp more trying to find the fullness of joy and these pleasures that are forevermore. But this is where David is redirecting us to a, a path of life that is altogether different, one that does not perish. Uh, now, the goal here is that it's not that you don't have troubles, but it's actually as you go through this life of trouble that we have, that, you know, we go through this life of what I say is the floor is lava, that in the middle of these difficulties and struggles and, and tragedies and terrors that we encounter all of the time, in the middle of these things, this is what God is offering to us. A path of life where you are able to experience the fullness of joy in the middle of that. That you're able to experience the pleasures of God in the middle of that. And so the challenge is then set before us of how do we then take hold of that life? 
Well, let's go back if we could uh, to understand what that life is by looking at the first two verses here where David is making summary declarations, all right, of really of, of who his, his commitment to God as well as who God is for him. And, he, and the, the key to this is that David uses three different names of God. God is called different things in the scriptures and each one of them has to do with one of his attributes uh, that is usually for that specific situation. And we find that here in these two verses. He begins by saying, preserve me, O God. And so this, this term, O God, is the word El, which is none other than what we would call God as the mighty one. So we, we worship uh, a lot of times all of the mighty things that God has done and we speak of those acts that he has done. And so David is calling on God the mighty one. He's saying, preserve me, mighty one, because you're able to do that. And in you, I take refuge. In other words, you, I have safekeeping because when I'm in your arms... When I'm in your arms, you're the mighty one who is able to, to, to hurt me or harm me when you are keeping me safe. And so he's turning to God in for refuge. But then he says, he goes, I say to the Lord, and this is a special phrase because the word Lord, if you look in the, your Bible there, all the, all the letters are capitalized, L-O-R-D. And what that is, that is the name, the covenant name of God to his people. That's the name Yahweh. And so... That is the word that talks about God, how he, is buying, how he has bound himself to his people through a covenant. It's very much like a marriage. In fact, marriage is given to give us a picture and an idea and an understanding of what it means to be bound to God. And that, a lot of times in our wedding ceremonies, we talk about that, that our covenant God is bound to us. And so we see that this marriage between God and his people, how he's bound himself covenantally to them. And so whenever they talk in that kind of language, they're talking about the, you are my God and we are your people. And so it's a very special phrase. So in that phrase where he says, I say to my Lord, who I'm covenantally bound to, you are my Lord, which is the word Adonai. And the word Adonai is just a kind of a, a common term. It's not a specific religious term, but it actually means the one who is above you, the one you answer to. Maybe you're, it's your boss or whoever. And uh, it's the one you would refer to as master. And, and so he's saying to the Lord God Yahweh that you are my Adonai, you are my master. It is you whom I serve. It is your will that I seek to do. I give my life to you, master. And so these statements here are very profound. And then he goes on to say in the last part of it, I have no good apart from you. Left to myself, there is nothing good. And what that does is that kind of circles back around. Uh, and and it, you know, this is, we see this in uh, the book of James 1.17, where it talks about every good and perfect gift comes from above, from our Father. And so, uh, and that there is no good that is within us. And so the good that is in us is actually good that comes from God. And so he's actually circling back around to the top is that there's no good that is in me. And because there's no good that is in me, it creates a life that is perilous, a life where I'm bringing consequences into my life. I'm bringing condemnation and judgment into my life, and I need help. I need protection. I need to be preserved. I need refuge and back to the beginning. So that's why I look to the mighty one, all right, for just that. 
And so this is what David is proclaiming. And so these statements that he's making here are what I would actually say forms the foundation for what it means to be a child of God because they reflect the mind and the heart of a God-centered person, someone who is singularly focused upon God first and foremost before everything else they do. So as they wake up in the morning, before they say uh, good morning to their spouse, this person thinks I'm a God-centered person first and he guides and directs in all the things I do and all the things of who I am. He's my identity, he's my worth, he is everything and that is then how you address the relationship with your spouse and then you go on through your day and as you go to work and so before you're a carpenter, okay, when you go to work, you're actually a God-centered person, a person who's given themselves to God and follows God and is instructed by God, and then you go, and all of that then influences the work that you're doing and impacts the work that you're doing. Uh, In all of your relationships, and you being a neighbor, as you participating in your community, as you helping in times of crisis, and you helping in in, in national disaster events, or whatever it might be, you're a God-centered person first. And then that determines how everything else flows in your life. And so in that, this God-centered person, yeah, now we have to think, well, let's, let's reverse this a little bit. And let's think about what it's not, okay? A God-centered person is different than like when we go to our, our, our favorite coffee shops, right? And uh, so you think of your extremely complex specialty drink that we order, okay? And uh, we have mastered the ability to overcomplicate the simple, right? That we want, you know, it's only this much of this kind of coffee and this kind, and we need it at this temperature with this kind of foam and only this much foam, but this much cream, but this cream has to come from a certain nut that then happens over here. And then this type of sugar, which isn't really sugar. And then, you know, it's just so, and then you get to the flavors and all that, right? And so, so it's very complicated little drink. You know, it's hard enough to just have black coffee and put sugar and cream in it, I find, because it's a messy drink, it's everywhere. And, um, but that's just the way it is. But that's how we, a lot of times, go about our relationship with God, that we have this very specific preferential way in which we let him into our lives, and he has a compartment and a space and a place. Um, but that's not how God is. God is not a flavor for our, our coffee of life. God is life, and this is what he's offering to us is a new path of life away from ourselves, away from that. And so, you know, uh, if we go then to the next verse here, we see that if you're a God person and you have given yourself to God in this way, then what happens is, is God binds himself to you. He fills you with his spirit. This is what we see happen in the New Testament as this fleshes itself out in the, the fullness of what Christ offers, that he fills us with his spirit. And in that, what happens is that when you are spirit driven, it gives you an altogether different inertia to life. In other words, you gravitate to different things altogether. And so we see this when we look at verse three. Uh, When he goes down, he says, for the saints in the land are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And so what he's saying here is that because you are my God, and I serve you, you are my Adonai, that you are my Yahweh, that you are my El, that, that now everything is different. And the gravitational pull for me is now towards your people, whom he says here, the saints who are in the land. So he's talking about the Israelites, the people of God, and he's, he's drawn to them. He says, these are the excellent ones, is these saints. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the word saints, that it actually is made up of the word holy, and it means holy ones. 
And the special, it's a very special designation for that. And in the, actually in the Greek, that's, that's the hagios, the Greek word for that is it's a whole, it's specifically just uh, translated as holy one. And it's interesting how that is directly connected to the name of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, who is referred to as the Holy One. And so because of what God has done through Christ and, and, and the Messiah, that we are then labeled as the saints, the Holy Ones of God, and in that we enter into the blessings that Christ receives from God. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying that the saints that are in the land, they are the most excellent ones. They are the ones that cause life to thrive. And this is, this, is a, this is a great point. And I'm drawn to that. Look what he says, that in them is all of my delight. I just am drawn to the people of God. And so when someone is God-centered and single-mindedly upon, you know, focused upon God, what they do is they gravitate to where God's presence is and that is concentrated most amongst God's people. When we are gathered together as the church, as Christ's body, it is the Holy Spirit within all of us that, that David is saying he is drawn to that. And that is the inertia that you see in someone who is a child of God, that you are drawn to be in the church and a part of the church and to be part of the corporate worship as we lift our voice together uh, to praise our God and to serve our community together and minister in his name, that that is what the people of God are drawn to, the, uh, the, the whole body of Christ. Now, just like in the law of physics, you have the law of equal and opposites, okay, and so it's where there's an there, where there's, there's one push, all right, and one, one gravitational pull in one way, then there's an opposite, right? And so this is the same that we see here as we go into verse four, that there's actually a repulsion, something he's pushing away from as he's moving towards God's people. And that, as we see, let me read in verse four, it says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply and their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out nor take their names on my lips. And so he is repulsed by the serving of other gods, that there's someone who is, 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 is put something above Yahweh and made that first. And so he's talking specifically here, not just of pagan cultures and the countries that are surrounding Israel. He's actually talking about those who are in Israel, who are actually forsaking the Lord God and are actually serving other gods within Israel. And it, this verse is standing in stark contrast from verses uh, one and two uh, and three. And so what we see here is as we read it though, it gives you this, this very reminiscent of these people who are turning to serve another God and their sorrows are multiplied. That, that sense sentence is very, very reminiscent of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where you have God who made the cosmos and made the, the, the heavens and the earth and then made all of the life that is on the planet. And then he made man and woman, and he made them in his image, and then he honored them and he blessed them by giving them charge over the creation that they would act towards the creation as God has acted and to essentially bring about the thriving of all of life on the planet. But then they came to this point in, in chapter three where they were tempted. They were tempted to follow another, all right? This is after they have been created by God and in relationship with God and bound to him and cared for by him. And they, they could not be in a more intimate personal state uh, with another creature. And 
in the moment of temptation, when offered to serve another, they chose to throw off God and to embrace themselves and serve themselves as God instead. And essentially to have a life where they are pursuing all of their own personal passions and pleasures as they would define them. And as you see from that very moment, the very moment that happens is ver- it just verse by verse as it plays out after that, you see the sorrows there of their sin begin to multiply. As their sin multiplies, the sorrow continues to multiply. As you go through the rest of the chapter three and into four, by the time you get to chapter six of the whole Bible, God's like, enough of this. We gotta just end and wipe this out. This is like a cancer that's growing. Right, exactly. And that's what David is highlighting here, that the pursuit of these other gods, it just is a, it's a path of multiple, multiple sorrows. And so we see this happen in our church today as well. This isn't something that we, we, we are not aware of. Uh, it's something that we're tempted to do and to participate in all of the time. Now, we have lots and lots of opportunities in our culture. And, and when we think about the things in which we do, all right, and the things that are before us, and the things that are offered to us, they really are intended to make your life full, to make your life better. And we hear a lot of the going to the next level. And if you just do this and you do this, or you, know, you buy the basic package, but then you find, well, I bought the basic package, but now we learn that the basic package is not enough, right? You have to have the premium package, okay? Because the basic package only offers this much, but if you want to have a full experience, you have to buy this other package. And that's life, right? That's like everything we do. Every store in you go to has like a rewards program of some sort, right? And, and that's, the, that's what they're selling to us. You need to have the fullness of joy, the pleasure that never ends. And so this is the road to that. Now, maybe it's not just, you know, that's in a consumer way, but we do that with everything. We, we have a tendency to try to do that uh, with really every type of thing that is out there to try to lure us away from centering our lives around God. And so it, this passage that we read, uh, we don't, which isn't as popular today, the, the drink offerings of blood. He says, I will not pour out. Uh, however, we, what we normally do is that we actually take hold of all the different, anything that is around us that, that, that is really intended to be good. And that's, that's what idolatry is. We take things that are good and we turn them into ultimate. Things that are intended to be beneficial and to help us, to help life thrive. And we make them ultimate things and we end up serving those things and our life ends up revolving around those things. That's when something becomes an idol. And so we are capable of just turning any and everything into an idol. It doesn't matter what it might be. Whatever it is, we get our focus upon that and we just tend to you know, jump ship from God and just get on that train and go. And John Calvin, he stated this. He says, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols that we just crank them out just one after the next after the next after that it's almost like you know when you wake up in the morning that's the battle you have you start fighting your own mind and your heart uh, for things that are going to try to compete with God being the center of your life and and this is what it means to have sin dwelling in you is that it's always trying to divert you and tempt you away from experiencing the fullness of life that God has created for you that only you can find in him and that offers you the fullness of joy and that pleasure forevermore. And so uh, the scriptures affirm us, uh, affirm to us that uh, if you wanna know how 
you're serving an idol. You say, well, maybe how do I know, how do I examine myself to know if something that I really like, a hobby that I'm into, how do I know if it's an idol or not in my life? And so the scriptures do affirm, they tell us this, they say that uh, uh, first and foremost that you can only serve one God, all right? So if you have two gods that are in your life, that you'll quickly find out that one of these you're going to pursue and that will consume your time and your finances and your thoughts and your heart and your passions and your interests. And the other one you're gonna put on a back burner. The other one you're gonna put on a shelf, all right? And that's, that's just what you're gonna find. And so we have to examine our lives today as we, as we think about what we do with our time. What is our intention with our families and with our children? Uh, and this is, a, this is a, a, a serious, serious issue within student ministries that we find. It's just what is the pathway that you are determining is the good life that your life ends up then revolving around? Is it one where it's centered upon God and, the, and, and focusing upon his people and being able to come and worship him and to serve him? And, and putting him first above all things? Or is that something that quickly gets put on a back burner? Uh, we see that uh, C.S. Lewis, he tells us this, he says that we are far too easily pleased in our life with what the world offers. He says that we are so content by making mud pies where all the while there's a vacation at the beach offered to you. Now, I know it doesn't mean much to us because the beach is just a few minutes away. But it just, you know, you have to think if you're in Nebraska, which my thought was I would never see the ocean. As a kid, that was just a, an ongoing thought of mine. I'd never see the ocean. And so but, so, but I'm content here to just make mud pies. I'd just make mud pies. And well, all the while, I have this offer to have a vacation at the beach. We're way too content uh, with lesser things here. And we're far too easily pleased. Brennan Manning, uh, in one of his books, he said this. He says that when God gets relegated by any, behind any other trinket, we have swapped out the pearl of great price for mere painted fragments of glass. And we are far too easily pleased by that. But see, we are created in the image of God. And there's no reason to settle for something less like that when all along you have God before us. And so how, how do we deal with this? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 57, he gives us a, a, a really a charge to repent and he says, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Anything that keeps us from between us and God and serving him alone, that there is no other gods before me, remove every obstacle that there is. For our God, he is a jealous God and he wants you for himself and for you to enjoy his unsurpassed blessings that cannot, nothing can compare to them or shine a light to the blessings and the promises that he offers. And if you think so now, then let's just, you know, I heard someone once say this, let's take the five million year test. How does, how does your pleasures that you get in the world now, what's that gonna do for you in 500 million years? <laughs> and well, because we're talking eternity here, right? There's only one standing there and that's God and, and, and those who he calls to himself. And so, so there's nothing that compare with God's blessings and promises and what he has for you. And so God wants to woo you away from these idols to show you that they're mud pies, that he doesn't want you playing with mud pies when he has so many more wonderful things for you in life. And so how do we do that? If we are so barraged all the time, and not only we're barraged, but we're just, it's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging, especially when you have an entire culture bent in a direction away from God. This is very difficult to do. If almost, it's not impossible. 
This is why God has forged a path to him. It removes every obstacle so that we are able to empower, go down this path and enjoy God as he truly wants us to enjoy him as. And this is through what we find in verse 10. And this is the prophecy from David of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah to come. And he says this in verse 10, he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And so in this passage, this is prophesying of the coming Messiah, the one who's going to come and who's going to overcome our sin. He's gonna overcome our sin and he's going to pay our penalty that we have stored up for ourselves the condemnation uh, and the guilt uh, against God uh, from, from our, our, our seeking after other idols, he's going to pay that penalty and offer to us an altogether new life. And he's going to do that by giving himself over to death. That he's gonna give himself to the grave, the grave that we essentially deserve to go to, the death that we need to suffer, the consequence for our sin. And he, what he has done is he went to the cross and he gave up his life. And on the cross is where God had poured his wrath upon him completely. And then he died. And then he died and he was put into a tomb and he did not, was not abandoned to the tomb he was, did not see decay, but three days later, he overcome death, he overcame sin by rising from the dead and then ascending into heaven where he sits now at, God, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Amen. And it's from there that he rules over the sovereign universe and he's saying to you now, the only savior that exists who is saying to you from the other side of the grave, calling you to himself to come there, past the grave, past death, past sin to him, to all who have faith in him and give their life to him. That's where he calls us to. There's no other savior that can do that. All the other saviors end at the grave. All the other pleasures and joy, they end at the grave. There is only one on the other side who's calling us to himself there. So he is the one who says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And to all who come to him, he gives them the right to become children of God. Well, how do we come? How do we then come to Jesus? How do we get to become the children of God? How do we come to Jesus? Well, I learned this from uh, Pastor Jack Miller, who was very influential in my life, and he said this. I don't know if it was his, 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 if he coined this or not, but he says it's exactly what the scriptures say. It's the Christian walk. This is how you come to Jesus. You believe. You believe in him that he is the Lord God Almighty, that he's the one who you can take refuge in, that, he, that there is no good in you, and so you trust in him, that he is your Lord and you're giving yourself to him. So you believe that and then you repent. And it gets, you know what you do the next day? You believe and you repent, and you believe and you repent. And that is the life of a child of God, that you're in a continual process of believing that this is the God who brings life, who has the path of life, and then you spend your life every day repenting of the sins that seem to barrage us and overtake us. And he gives us the power to do that by dwelling within us. So he leads us, he instructs us, he empowers us, and we're able to follow him. That's why Jesus was saying to people, follow me. 
I'm the way. There's no other way to the Father but through me and to all who give their lives to him. This is the good news of the Bible. I hope it is good news for you today. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we are so grateful that you have offered to us, to sinners, people who've rebelled, people who are idol worshipers, people who've ran after another, all along looking for what you offer. I pray, Father, that you stir in us today the passion to become single-minded, just singular upon you, that you are the center of our lives. Help us and empower us to revolve around you. And I pray, Lord God, that if there's anyone here today who's never given their life to Christ, that today you call them and draw them to yourself and they begin that walk of believing in you, giving their life to you and repenting and following the Lord Jesus as he's instructed. And they get to experience the full blessing as David talked about in this psalm. So Lord Jesus, I ask, save us, I pray. In your name alone, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.